0: The scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 17. Now, the words are printed in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible, so don't worry. John chapter 17, verses 13 through 19. If you do have a Bible, please turn uh, to that passage now. The rest of you can use your bulletin. We're going to read just these few short verses together. John chapter 17, verses 13 through 19. And just so you know, this is in the middle of what is often described as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And I'll explain what that means in a minute, but just so you know, this is this is Jesus praying to his Father in heaven, and this is what he says. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Just a reminder, uh, it, we, uh, after the message, uh, hopefully there'll be an opportunity to uh, answer some questions that you may have uh, uh, that may come up during the, the message, so uh, think about those as you're listening to the, to the message, and uh, you can text them to me. My phone number is right there in the bulletin underneath the scripture reading. You can, of course, raise your hand if, if you prefer to do it that way. All right. Here's a question that we're going to try to answer uh, this morning. What did Jesus come to do? What is it that Jesus came to do? People would say maybe, well, you know, you can ask this question to all kinds of people because Jesus is a historical figure. He's not just a religious figure. He's a historical figure. And therefore, uh, Christians, -Christians, non-Christians, religious people, non-religious people, they'll all have opinions about this, what Jesus came to do. So for example, uh, many of the non-Christians that I have known uh, who know about Jesus and a bit about His teaching, etc., they would say that He came to open our eyes to spirituality, or he came to provide a social revolution, or even a political revolution, or he came to be a, a profound, wise teacher, like others that have come before and have come after him. And that's, there's not, nothing wrong with those answers. It's not like none of those things are true. Jesus was a social revolutionary. Jesus was a political revolutionary. Jesus was a wise teacher and a guru. Those things are all true, absolutely. But is that kind of the heart of what Jesus came to do? I would say probably a Christian would say, no, no. Those are things that Jesus did, but that's not the heart of His purpose. Okay, what would a Christian say Jesus came to do? Well, many would say, well, He came to show us God's love. Or He came to die on the cross For our sins, or he came to restore our relationship with God. And again, all those things are true. And maybe they're a little closer to the heart of what Jesus came to do than some of the other uh, ideas that I, I just gave you. But is that the is that the ultimate purpose for which Jesus came? Like, did he ultimately come to die? Did he ultimately come to restore us to God? Did he ultimately come to teach us? how to love like God did, is that sort of the end game of Jesus' life and ministry on earth? The Bible would say, no, actually. The the purpose for which Jesus came into this world, the reason He lived the life we should have lived, the reason He died the death we should have died, the reason He did all these miracles, the reason He taught with such profundity, can be summed up in one word holiness. Jesus came to make His people holy. And you say, really? Like, the, I mean, the non-Christians might say it too, but certainly the Christians might really? Well, listen to this. This is Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. He says this in his opening sentence in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even, now listen to it, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Okay, so before He even created, He had chose a certain people that He was going to do something. What was He going to do? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. Wow. Holiness, eh? Holiness is the purpose for which Jesus came. The the reason God the Father sent the Son into the world to live for us and die for us was so that He could make us holy. And you know what? Paul's not the only one who says that. Jesus says that in our text as well when He says, listen to verses 17 through 19 again, He says, Sanctify them in the truth. That word, sanctify, sanctify okay, is uh, from the Latin word sanctus, which means holy. Now, understand something, okay? This passage, John 17, is a very, very special, amazing passage recorded in Scripture. I mean, all of Scripture is amazing. Don't, Don't get me wrong. I love it all. But what's amazing about John 17 is that what you get in John 17 is you get this long conversation between God the Father, or bef- between Jesus and his Father. We get to eavesdrop on like an, an inter-Trinitarian conversation. And if you know anything about prayer, like when you pray, most of you probably, you know, your hands sweat a little bit when you have to pray in public, <laughs> Right? Maybe because you, I don't know, maybe you have a little bit of anxiety about speaking in front of other people and stuff like that. But one of the reasons is, is because you know that prayer is a deeply personal experience. You are very vulnerable in prayer. So when you pray privately to God the Father, it's an intimate experience that you're having with God as you pray to Him. And therefore, what an amazing thing it is for us in John chapter 17 to be actually able to eavesdrop on Jesus having this kind of extraordinary conversation with His Father because He reveals the depths of His heart, what's really on His heart. And by the way, if I can just add to that, Jesus is praying this prayer the night before he goes to the cross to die on it. He knows that he is about to die. Why is that significant? Think about this. As a pastor, I have had the privilege, actually, of spending a fair amount of time with people who are dying and people who know they're about to die. And one of the things that your own mortality, knowing about your own mortality, what it does to you is it it, it has a a very clarifying effect on you. You know, all the things that don't really matter in life, all of a sudden, they get pushed to the side. And the stuff that really matters, that's what you start to focus on because you know you don't have a lot of time in the world. There's not time for lots of small talk. You visit with a, with a person who's, who knows that they're going to pass away relatively soon, and you get to the, to the heart of the matter very, very quickly. You get to what is on their heart very, very quickly. And that's precisely what we get here with Jesus praying to his heavenly father. You get to his heart very, very quickly. What matters most to him, what is most deeply on his heart. And what does Jesus ask his father for you? When he is in this intimate prayer before his father, before he goes to his death, his, his time on earth is short. He's going to be leaving his friends. He prays, deep, he pl- he prays uh, uh, with, with deep and profound uh, intensity to his father. And what does he pray about? What does he ask his father for? Lots of things. But what it really all boils down to is one thing. He prays for your holiness. Verse 17 says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Here's the gist of Jesus' prayer. Father, make them holy, please. And keep them holy. This is the number one thing that Jesus wants in your life. What does God want for you? Does He want you to be happy? There's a way of saying yes. There's a lot of qualifications to that, but there is a way of saying yes, God does want you to be happy. Well, let's go a little bit deeper. Maybe you say, well, God wants me to use my gifts and talents and abilities To serve him in his kingdom, absolutely true. But underneath it all, holiness. The heart of Jesus' heart for you is that you would be holy. Okay, have I pounded that point hard enough yet? I hope so. We're going to look at four things together very quickly here about holiness. We're gonna, if holiness is the thing that he wants, we need to know what it is not, what holy sis, holiness is not, what holiness is, what holiness looks like, and then finally the source or the power of this holiness that we need to pursue. So we're going to talk about holiness today. We're going to think about holiness today because this apparently is what it's all about. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian and you're wondering, what is that religion all about? What is, what is it all about? I, mean, I hear them talk about, uh, you know, serving God. I hear them talk about Jesus dying for their sins. I hear them talk. What's the end game of all of this stuff? Here it is, this concept called holiness. If you can get this and understand this, you can get and understand the heart of the Christian faith. Okay. Here we go. First of all, what holiness is not? This, it's a bad word for today, eh? Holiness. Holiness is like a bad word. Being holy? Oh, they're, they're holy rollers, right? Or, oh, you're holier than thou, are ya? We don't tend to use the word, in our culture anyway, in a very positive way. It's kind of got negative connotations. And that's because, generally, when people think of the word holy, they also think of the word good. A person who's holy is a, is a goody-goody, you know, a goody-two-shoes. They're, they're a righteous person. And maybe they also think, well, then that also makes them a judgmental person because they're so good. They're better than me, right? Right? And even in Christian circles where you hear the word holiness, you think of goodness because you think of sanctification, and Christians will use this big word, sanctification, trying to describe this process of of becoming more and more like the Jesus that they worship. And the way they think of that, of course, is generally is, well, I become better. I'm a better Christian today than I was last year. Therefore, I am more holy. That's kind of the language that we use and the way that we sort of think about it. But wait a minute. Jesus, in verse 19, says something that you cannot gloss over. He says, I consecrate myself, or I sanctify myself, or I make myself holy, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Jesus says, for their sake... I consecrate myself. If holiness equals goodness, why is Jesus saying, I make myself holy? Isn't Jesus perfect? I mean, that's what Scripture teaches, right? That he was without sin. You can't improve on perfection. There's a place where he's actually arguing with the Pharisees and he says, who among you can prove me guilty of sin? Nobody can because Jesus has never committed a sin. He's perfect. And so therefore... Christ's goal, when he talks about holiness, can't be just making people good. Holiness is not goodness. Holiness is not just avoiding bad behaviors and embracing good behaviors. It's far, far deeper and more profound than that. Okay, well, what is it? Point number two. That was quick, eh? First point. Boom, done. Second point, what is holiness? If holiness is not goodness... What is holiness? Well, it helps to go back to the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is the backdrop of the New Testament. And so when things like holiness are being explained in the New Testament, they're being explained in terms of the Old Testament, how it was understood back then. And when you go back to the Old Testament, you discover something very interesting. It's not just people that can be holy. Stuff, things can be holy in the Old Testament. So for example... Exodus chapter 3, Moses sees this bush that's burning, but it's not burning up. He walks up to it. All of a sudden, he said, he's told, hey, dude, get your boots off. You're on holy ground. The ground is holy. Interesting. People of Mount Sinai or people of Israel come to Mount Sinai, and God says, don't let them touch the mountain because it's holy. The mountain's holy. They build the tabernacle, and they build a temple. They take a chair, and they consecrate the chair because it's going to be used in the temple. And so now it's a holy chair. So it's not just people that, is, that are being uh, made holy. It's things that are being made holy. And what is it that makes them holy? It's just this. Holy things are things that are set apart for a particular purpose. Holiness is being set apart for a particular purpose. That's it. Let me illustrate this for you. Here's a woman who is a rower. And she says, in four years, I want to be in the Olympics. I want to row in the Olympics. What does she do? She consecrates herself. She sanctifies herself. She sets herself apart for that task, for that goal. I will be an Olympic swimmer one day. And so that means that everything else in her life now becomes subservient to that goal, you see. Her diet is chosen around achieving that goal. She can no longer have Big Macs the way I can, which is why I would never try to get to the Olympics. She, she chooses her schedule around that goal. She gets up at a certain time and she goes and trains at a certain time and then she has breakfast. At it. It's very, very regimented. Her living arrangements might even be chosen around that goal. She says, I got to move to so-and-so because that's where the best coach is or that's where the best water is or I want to train at altitude so that I, uh, I, I don't know, I get more oxygen in my blood when I'm at a lower level. So like all this stuff is all subservient to that one main goal. Yes, she does other stuff She visits her family, she hangs out with friends, she may even be dating somebody or maybe she's married, I don't know, maybe she has kids. But when you're like pursuing an Olympic dream, all those other things must be subservient to that goal and therefore if there's anything that stands in the way of the goal, if there's anything that interferes with achieving the goal, it's out, it's ditched, it's gone. That's what holiness is, you see. Because you've been sanctified, you've been set apart for something. That's what Jesus means when he says, For their sake, I consecrate myself. I sanctify myself. He's saying, everything I've come to do and everything that I'm going to do and everything I've done so far has been for them, for this one goal. I have taught. I have done miracles. I am about to go to my death. Every single one of those things is meant to achieve this one goal. Our holiness. Jesus sanctified himself for that. And if there's any obstacle to that, he ditches it. There's this fascinating story. Jesus had some friends, right, like everybody else. He had some tight friends. They were called disciples. And within, like his group of friends, like everybody else, he had a a few that were really tight. Peter, James, and John. They were the the inner circle, the three. They, they They were his closest buddies. And at one point, He's talking about what he has come to do, to his closest confidants, and one of them, Peter, says, "No, you're not going to die. We will never let that happen. You're not going. Stop talking about going to the cross." And Jesus looks at him and says, "Get behind me, Satan! You do not have the things of God in mind, but you have the things of men. In other words." Here was a close friend who stood in the way of the goal, and if he was going to remain in the way of the goal, Jesus was willing to let him go. That's holiness. It's this laser-like focus on one main thing. It's this total commitment to one objective. Uh, It's a little old. I'm not going to use it because it's too old. Forget it. I had another really great example, but... Every time I try something from TV, it's, it falls flat because I'm old. Um, it's not about being a good person. It's not even necessarily about being without sin. That's not what it looks like. A holy person is not just the person you know who's got tremendous moral character. Because frankly, I know many non-Christians that could I could not hold a candle to in terms of their moral goodness. They are more generous than me. They are more hardworking than me. They are more kind and compassionate than me. They are better people than me. But they're not sanctified. They're not holy because they have not been set apart or set themselves apart to be committed to the one thing, which is their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a Christian Point three, what does it look like? What does holiness look like? If it doesn't look like goodness, how do we recognize it when we see it? Well, one of the great examples of holiness in the Bible comes from Daniel chapter three. Daniel had three buddies Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They were all from Israel, but they all ended up in Babylon because the king of Babylon conquered their people and he took a whole whack of Jews to Babylon and made them live there. And they were all living in Babylon. And things were going very well. They were working in the, in the kingdom. They were actually up-and-comers. They were kind of put through the university system and then brought into the bureaucracy, and they were very hardworking and doing excellent. And then the king, you know, he does what people do. He, he gets all full of himself, and he says, yeah, you know what I've got to do? I'm going to build this idol I'm to have everybody bow down to it just to show that I can because I'm the king. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say, we can. not and in Daniel chapter 3, it says something amazing. They, they speak to their king and they say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. They've already told the king, look, we're not going to bow down to your idol. The king says, well, you do know I have this furnace over here and when people give me a hard time, I just huck them in there. And I'm going to toss you guys in the furnace if you don't listen to me. And they respond with, well, we don't need to defend ourselves in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. And you're thinking, whoa, like that's some serious confidence, right? Like they just, they know. You know, are they really that tough? Are they really that brave? If they know that they're not going to die if they're being thrown in the furnace. Ah, but listen, it keeps going. And it says this, but even if he does not even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. They don't know whether they're going to live or die. What they do know is that holiness is even more important than life. Do you hear that? Holiness is is even more important than life. They had sanctified themselves, and so their sanctification, their commitment to God, their absolute loyalty and allegiance to Him was more important to them than even their physical life. And you say, Wow, man, I'm glad I don't live there, and I'm glad I'm not being challenged to bow down to idols, so I don't have to worry about that. Oh, really? How many of you are in careers where if you want to get ahead, you have got to work crazy hours? You've got to be on call 24-7. Maybe you own your own business that you're trying to build up. Maybe you're working for someone else, but you, in order to get ahead, you have to sacrifice family time or church time or friend time or whatever in order to get somewhere. You don't have idols that you're battling? What about all the pressure that women have to look a certain way? What about all the pressure men seem to have to, to achieve a certain success? See, holiness is not just about right and wrong, okay? It's about setting apart something that is, that is of ultimate priority. So I knew a story of a guy who, um, who was same-sex attracted and he believed that the Bible told him that he ought not to uh, live out of that and, and uh, enter into a same-sex relationship, got, that the Bible called him to live a chaste life uh, in obedience to God rather than uh, uh, live in a same-sex relationship. And he had been part of a church that was very patient and loving and understanding with him and encouraging of him in his struggles and they were there for him when he needed uh, encouragement and accountability and all that. And he failed occasionally and he, he repented and he was always welcomed back into the fellowship and he found that he was making great strides in sanctifying himself here and, and being committed to this bigger thing. But then he got a job opportunity in another city. And it was a great job opportunity. And it would have advanced his career quite significantly. But if he took it, he would have no community to help him with uh, dealing with this part of his life. He would have no support system. He wouldn't have the friends that he had, that kind of thing. And so in the end, he chose not to take the job. Not because it was wrong, but because he had sanctified himself. Let's say, yeah, sanctification means I will follow you even if I don't want to. I will do what you are calling me to do even if I don't want to. I will go where you are telling me to go, even if I don't want to, simply because you say so, because I trust you. Think about the Olympic hopeful again, okay? They've got this coach, and the coach says, you want to make it to the Olympics? Okay, we're at the end of the practice, but here's where you make your money. This is where I always say to my, my soccer teams that when I coach. At the end of practice, I always like, put them through wind sprints and stuff, like, and I make them practically throw up. It's awesome. They love it. Anyhow, but I tell them just before, I say, guys, this is where you make your money. This is where you set yourself apart from the other teams because if you have that little extra step at the end of the game when it's a 1-1 game and you got one step on the other guy, that means that you're going to put that ball away and they're not and you're going to win. So this is where you make your money right at the end and so I say, four more wind sprints or, or four more squats or four more whatever. Imagine the Olympic hopeful is sitting in front of their coach and the coach is at the end of the practice saying, now this is what you got to give me. you got to do four more laps and, the, and the, the, the hopeful says, I don't know. I mean why we've been at this for an hour now i'm tired i've given everything i've got coach the coach is going to say do you want this or not you got to trust me one more thing you got to understand if holiness is not just about being good but it's about being set apart. It's about being sanctified. That means the challenge to holiness is going to look different for you than it is for me. Okay? The challenge to holiness is going to look different for you than it is for me because you're going to be challenged to be holy in different ways in different places than I am going to be. Yes, of course, there's baseline stuff. Look, we all have sexual temptation. We all deal with consumerism. And the lust for stuff, we all struggle with coveting, I'm sure on some level we all do, but, but the specifics of one person's battle for holiness versus another person's battle for holiness is going to look different. And you got to be careful not to impose your battle for holiness on, a, on another person. Okay, that's what it looks like. Alright, now, last thing. Uh, <laughs> what if you are the Olympic hopeful who says... I don't want to. If you're honest with yourself, come on. You are that Olympic hopeful, aren't you? I don't want to, there's things in in your life right now, every single person in this room, there is something that Jesus is telling you, this is an obstacle to your sanctification. This is an obstacle to you giving yourself entirely for me. This is standing in the way. This is interfering. This is slowing your progress down. Maybe it's a relationship that you're in. Maybe it's a job that you're in. Maybe it's a a, a sinful uh, habit that you're involved in. Every one of us has something that Jesus is saying to you probably this morning right now. He's saying, you've got to give that up. And you're saying, but I don't want to. Or there's something in your life that you know he is knocking on your door and he's saying, you've got to do this. You need, this is the step you need to take to be sanctified. You have got to start putting your life into this direction or you have got to start uh, uh, participating in this thing. And you're saying to yourself, I don't want to. I don't want to give it up and let it go. And I don't want to do that. Stop making me. But this is the most important thing. This is the thing that he said he came to do, to make you holy. So what do we do? We're stuck, aren't we? We need a power, right? We need a source for holiness. And you know, Jesus knew that. When he was praying this prayer to his father, he knew that you and I were like, we can't pull it off. Not in a million years. And so what does he pray? In verse 17, he says, sanctify them. In the truth. Your word is truth. You know, he doesn't he doesn't say, Father, give them the willpower. Right? Father, enable them to suck it up. No, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is. Is truth sanctify them by the message of Scripture. Well, what's that? You read the Bible, and I challenge you. If you, if you, I challenge everybody here. Read the Bible. I, I, I almost want to say I dare you to read the Bible. If you are not a religious person and you're wondering about religion, I dare you to read the Bible. We believe, Christians believe, that this Bible is not just a book. It's not just people musing about divine stuff. We believe that this Bible has power. It's dangerous. We believe this is a dangerous book. Because this book contains the word of God himself. And I dare you to read it. This is what Jesus is saying. Sanctify them by the truth. As you read the Bible, you learn about this holy God. But you learn about this God who is glorious and majestic and holy and set apart. But he made us in love. He is good and kind and gracious. And yes, you learn about his expectations. You discover the Ten Commandments. You discover all kinds of laws. And that can be really, really depressing because you also learn that you're a sinner. (laughs) That you're a rebel to this God. That you don't want to follow the Ten Commandments, you want to follow your Ten Commandments. You're okay with Ten Commandments, you just want to be the one who writes them. And you're in rebellion against this God and you discover that you deserve to be condemned by Him. You deserve to be cast out of His presence. You deserve to be annihilated by Him and crushed under a boot of His judgment. Not a very nice message, is it? But then you keep reading. Just like you got to keep reading in verse 19, it says, And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. You keep reading the Bible and you learn about the one. You learn about the one who sanctified himself, you learn about Jesus. You learn that here was this son of God who was without sin, who who existed in glory beside his heavenly father for all eternity, and he set it all aside. And he sanctified himself and came into this world and separated himself from the bosom of his father and was crucified on a cross for you and for me where, where he Willingly was separated from the Father so that you could be separated for the Father. You see? You got to meditate on that. You got to let that truth, you got to read about that, you got to read Jesus, you got to study Jesus, you got to see Jesus, you got to think about Jesus. And as the truth of what he did is pounded into you, I promise you, you will be motivated for holiness. That's what will happen. When you see that he died for you, you cannot help but want to live for him. You'll say, look, you saved my life. Command me. Whatever you want, it's yours. I really, really, you know, I was looking so hard for There's got to be a movie about this, right? I'm sure there is, but my brain is very slow now, and so I couldn't come up with, with anything. But there's got to be a movie where somebody saves someone, right? There's, there's, this is a theme, Somebody saves someone and then that person commits their life to the person who saved them, right? I think there's a cartoon one, like a Disney one, where some animal saves another animal and then the the animal walks off and the little animal is like following them and saying, hey, hey, where are you going? Can I come with you? And you're just like, get lost. Leave me alone, kid. I work alone or something like that. No, I want to come with you. I want to help you. I want to help you. Because they're like bound to them. Is there one? Have I described something? Shrek! Shrek! Perfect! Thank you. See? See, that's what you do. When you don't have an illustration, you ask your congregation, you got an illustration for this? And then I write it down, so the next time I preach it, it looks like it's mine. Shrek! Right? But that's, but that's how it works. When you become so captivated by what he gave for you, you, you cannot help but respond with wanting to, to give everything to him. And then when you say, I don't want to, you'll also say, but I will. I don't want to give up that relationship, but I trust you, so I will. I don't want to give up that job, but I trust you, so I will. I don't want to stop that behavior, but I trust you, so I will. And it may not be a momentary boom, 180 turn. It may be a long, painful process, so be it. He is patient. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the holiness of Jesus that enables our holiness. Lord, make us holy. Make us take holiness seriously. Hmm. May it matter to us the way it mattered to your son as he prayed before he went to his death. Sanctify us by your truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.